Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be verses 10 through 23. First, been working through this and uh, realize, um, as late as yesterday, really, that I needed to split this up into two messages instead of just one. So, um, this is part one of a message, two messages that I'm entitled, Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. And we're going to be in Philippians 4, verse 10. If you're physically able, in reverence and respect out of God's precious word, will you stand with me right now as we read from it? Philippians 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet everyone in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet, greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus, be, Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we rejoice in you and we praise your wonderful name. We're in a book where we're instructed and we've got reason to, to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, you declare rejoice. The first words out of your mouth, Jesus, when you were raised from the dead and met the women at the garden tomb, the first word that you said to them was rejoice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You went to heaven and not with the blood of goats and bulls, but your own blood and spread it across the mercy seat. And God... Our Father, your righteous judgment was appeased and satisfied there and the sacrifice was accepted and you sent your Son back down here, raised Him from the dead to tell us and the whole eternal realm and everywhere in between and below, sacrifice accepted. Hallelujah. We praise your wonderful name. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is alive. And we thank you, Jesus, that because you live, we too shall live, who have repented toward you and put our faith in your dear Son. We celebrate you just you for that, because we know that repentance is a gift as well as faith, and you receive all the glory, praise, and honor for it all. And Lord, we're kept by grace through faith, just like we're saved by grace through faith. You'll see things through by grace through faith, and we're confident that he who began a good work in us is going to complete it until the day of his dear Son. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. We are recipients of your grace. We're beneficiaries of your mercy. And we are objects of your love, all for your glory. We love you, Lord, and we worship you, and we know that the only reason we can say that is because you first loved us. I pray now that as we read the Bible, that the Bible will read us. I pray that the words will seep down deep and you'll till up the soil of our hearts and help us to receive what you'd have for us this morning. Cook us up a cathead biscuit from the griddle of glory. And Lord, serve it up so we can sit at your table and eat spiritual breakfast that will nurture, nurture us, strengthen our faith, convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. All the things that your word will do because it does not return void. We praise you and worship you for it. Thank you for the testimonies of God that we have in your word and the confidence, full confidence we can place in them because we can place full confidence in you. Speak to us, Jesus. In your sweet name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul is now coming to the end of this letter written to the Philippian church. And it was a church that we've talked about. At the time of this writing, he had founded the church some ten years previous. And he finishes his letter in verse 10, beginning in verse 10, as a, a really a thank you note. And this is his thank you note to the church at Philippi. Because through God's servant, Epaphroditus, he was sent there as a, a, a representative of the Philippian church to Rome, which is where Paul was, you'll recall, when he wrote the letter. And he was under house arrest there, awaiting trial, standing before the very emperor of the world at that time, Nero. And while he was awaiting trial under house arrest, chained to a Roman Praetorian guard for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he wrote this letter. Epaphroditus made his way to Rome, commissioned by the church at Philippi, and he obviously delivered a financial gift uh, to Paul for which he was extremely grateful. And he writes this uh, letter of gratitude, or this portion of the letter, to, to thank them for the gift. And we're going to look at a couple of things here in this letter. And I, again, I was going to go all the way through it, but I realized that we're not going to have time to do that today. So we'll take this in two parts. The first of which, we want to look and see a couple of things we want to live from this text. or a bunch of them, obviously. Far more than I can see, but I can tell you this. There are two things, two takeaways that I'm trusting that we'll come out of this with this morning uh, in particular. And that uh, is the secret of contentment. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. The Apostle Paul knew that like no one else. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at last your care for me has flourished again. Like he talked about before, earlier when he left Philippi, he was persecuted at Philippi, went on to Macedonia, Thessalonica, and Berea, and then went on from there to Athens and Corinth, ran into trouble at every place, every place, narrowly escaped death, was sought after by angry Jews who resented the message he bore of salvation through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. He was on the run, and in the middle of all his turmoil, he was supported by a church, not a rich church as men would measure, but a spiritually rich church that gave sacrificially to his ministry, and that was the church of Philippi. And now he says, I now see again that after these ten years have passed, you've got an opportunity now, and you've had an opportunity to show care for me, and that care has flourished again through this gift. I know you did care, but you lacked opportunity. But the door has been opened wide now. The Bible doesn't tell us why 
He, they lacked opportunity. We don't know. We don't know if they had something hinder them, getting a gift to him. They didn't know where he, his whereabouts. We don't know. But it, they lacked opportunity. But now they have this opportunity to give the gift, and they do indeed give it. Then in verse 11 it says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The first thing that, that I, I really would like for us to carry away from this is, is that contentment is learned behavior. Contentment is learned behavior. We do not come out of the womb content. And we struggle after, after, after coming to faith in Jesus Christ with that very issue time and time and over and over again. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that, that, uh, that speak to this. Proverbs 27.20 says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of men are never satisfied. That's one of the tyrannies of pornography. When a man gets involved in pornography and... He's looking for that high to end all highs, that experience to end all experiences that will carry him over in life. And it evades him and it keeps him in bondage because he's looking for that experience to end all other experiences or the one he could just have one more before he repents and gets faithful to his marriage vows or faithful to his Lord. That's the way it is with, with drug use. They say that the first time you use a drug, that it gets a high and it gets you to a place of of euphoria to this level and that embeds a memory in your mind of that experience of euphoria but physically speaking physiologically speaking you can never attain it again so every other hit after that the high is just a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less but the problem is is that experience of euphoria is embedded in your spirit and you're in a cycle of bondage always going after what you can never have again why? Because the flesh is never satisfied. The flesh always wants more. The flesh is never content. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 8 says this, The eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear filled with hearing. Solomon was given a blank check by the Lord and was endowed with great riches from God. One of the richest men, if not the richest man, as far as worldly wealth is concerned, to ever walk the face of the earth. And he was given the opportunity to experience those riches and then he wrote about what he concluded from them. And part of that writing is the book of Ecclesiastes. And he determined, after having experienced all of that and being filled to overflowing with worldly wealth, his, his, his conclusion was the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, everything under the sun is vain. All that was promised by riches and all that was promised by the prominence and the prestige and the fame has come to nothing. I know in the last 24 hours, before we went to bed last night, we were checking the news and Whitney Houston died, 48 years old. And she had it all. It was at the top of her career. Uh, no telling how many millions of dollars because of her God-gifted voice that she used for self-serving purposes. And now what does it mean? Died a tragic death? Probably more than likely because of an addiction she had nursed for many years. 
I mean, how many times do we need it proven? How many times does it have to be put on display for us to finally come to the conclusion that everything under the sun is vain? In other words, life without God is nothing but death parading itself as life. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Before you waste your time trying to amass worldly wealth or to enhance your stay down here, take it from somebody who amassed more of it than you'll ever see. Take it from him. Let's take his word for it. I've been there. I've done that. Satan writes checks he cannot cash. It's all vain. The Bible says in John, 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What is that but a unholy trinity of truth that says the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life? What is that but six, six, six? What is that but God independent of man? What is that but man saying, I don't need you? What is that but man saying, thanks, but no thanks? I've got it under control. I don't need you. I'm God. Is that not the pathology of the temptation in the Garden of Eden? Is that not it? Who do you think you are, God? You're the only one who gets to be God? You're the only one who gets to be God, Eve? Does He just get to be God? Why is it that He just gets to be God? You need to be God. Look how pretty you are. Look at this place where you are. Exercise your rights. Experience some things. Go the distance. See what life is like out there. Leave your husband. Leave your marriage vows. Go out there and explore and see What's out there that this stingy God is trying to, to uh, spoil your fun and, and protect you from? He's not protecting you from death. He's protecting you from life. Exercise your rights. And that's a lie straight from hell. And boy, we buy into it all the time, don't we? And the Apostle Paul says this, Contentment is learned behavior. You did not come out of the womb content. You came out of the womb a sinner. If there's one doctrine that we are to all be able to agree upon, and we can't, but we are to all be able to agree upon, which should be the doctrine of the depravity of man. And I'm not talking about getting on the internet or wherever your news source is. I'll admit, I like to find out what's going on in the world. I'll admit it. I'm a news person. And we get that from the internet. But wherever you get it from, or wherever you read, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a good, careful considerate, meditative look in the mirror. I, I, need, I don't need to go to CNN to find out how wicked men are. I don't need to go to Fox News to find out how wicked men are. All I've got to do is take a short trip. I need to measure it off and see how far it is.
to our laboratory. All I've got to do is go however many ever feet it is to our laboratory over there and look in the mirror and I get a good picture of the depravity of man. We're told it's our environment that gets us in trouble. You know, if things would just change. If things would just change. See, see, it's learned behavior. The Apostle Paul, look what he said here. He said this, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, and I know how to have nothing, and I know how to be content when I have everything, and everything in between. I've learned this, that I can be content. That word content, this is the only place in the New Testament that that Greek word from which that word is lifted appears. And it just means this. It's very simple. It means I have enough. One of my favorite songs that we sing on Sunday morning, sometimes we'll sing, is Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough. He is. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. The Apostle Paul, he was taken off the circuit. He was out there preaching and doing Billy Graham crusades. And he's just taken off the circuit. He's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. People are preaching the gospel out there and marring his name because he says, I'm out here free preaching and that nut's in jail. Who are you going to follow? And he's going through all of these uh, the, this what could have been anxiety, and yet he's over there praising God, and by the way, leading people in Caesar's household to faith, because the letter ends with those who are in Caesar's household, the believers there greet you. Why were they believers? Because he'd been witnessing to them. You've got to figure, if you're going to be chained to the Apostle Paul, you're probably going to hear the gospel. If you live by so-and-so-and-so, wonder if you ever heard the gospel. If the cubicle is right by so-and-so, wonder if you ever heard the gospel. Come to faith 20 years ago. I got aunts and uncles and cousins who are not saved. Wonder if they ever heard the gospel. My goodness. My goodness. Don't be Hard on them rejecting a message that you've never been willing to share with them. Share it with them and then don't be hard. Keep sharing. Share the gospel. He was content because he knew he had enough. He was content because contentment is an inwrought grace for those who take God at His word. It's just that simple. If that would have happened in the Garden of Eden, if Eve would have turned to, and I know this was all foreordained by God, I understand that. But if Eve would have turned to, the, to, the, to Satan and Satan said, she said, listen, we're not supposed to eat of that tree. Touch it. She added to God's word. That's another sermon. But she said, we're not supposed to eat of it, nor are we supposed to touch it. He didn't say that. He said, don't eat it. All right? And Satan said, did God really say that? She should have turned around to him and said, yes. That's exactly what God said. That is exactly what God said. And he's been doing that kind of foolishness ever since. He's been trying to cast doubt on God's Word. Did God really say that? He's doing that to you right now. There's somebody in your life right now, and God, there's something that God's told you, and the enemy's come along beside you and said, did God really say that? Did God really say that? You're going to risk forgiving somebody because God said that? You're going to risk that? You're going to put yourself out there that far? Are you crazy? Life's over here. Stay in bondage with me. I'm headed for hell. I'd like for you to go there. And if you're not going there, I sure would like to ruin your life so that you can't be used so other people don't. Speaking of the devil. Contentment 
is learned behavior. Well, how do you learn it? What's the secret? We'll get to that in a minute. Part of the secret is this. Look at it. I've learned to be a base and I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He's saying to them this, I appreciate the gift and I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful, really, my motivation for my gratitude is what is going to accrue to your eternal bank account for having given it. But... I'm not speaking in regard to need because my needs have been met. I am content. I have enough. I've got Jesus and I've found Him after all these years to be enough. Every sin in your life pretty much arises from not believing that. He's not enough. I need, and you fill in the blank, and whatever that is, that's sin. Second principle. Contentment is a learned behavior. We'll get into how it's learned in a minute. Second one is this. Contentment, according to that verse right there, is independent of circumstances. Contentment is independent of circumstances. Now let's be honest for a second. Let's be honest. Have some integrity. I'm not saying you don't have some, but let's all have some integrity here. You are either in a situation, or you might be going into one, or you have been one in which you believed this. That contentment is contingent upon my circumstances. That my contentment is a victim of my circumstances. If circumstances are going well, color me content. If they're not going well, I'm not so content. I am a pinball in a pinball machine, for those of you who can still remember them. And you're chasing around some Pac-Man something or some, hey, give me a pinball machine. And look at it and you, know, you go bounce around, bing, boom, like this all over the place. And from one whim to the other, one circumstance to the other, one opinion to the other. And there, <laughs> there's no settledness. There's no anchor for your Christian faith. You're kind of just floundering back and forth. That's not the testimony that God wants out of your life. That's not the testimony He's trying to wield in your life. My contentment has nothing to do with my circumstances. You know how we know that? Because when your circumstances change, contentment still is elusive to you. That's how we know that. Whatever you want it to change, however you want it to change, you go, you know what? If I'll ever get to there, I'll be, I'll be content. That's it. Listen, Solomon's done it for you. He's done the work for you. Take his word for it. He got all the wealth. He got all the prominence. He was the richest man who ever lived. The wisest man who ever lived. Everybody came to him. He was the go-to. You want to answer? Go to him. Don't put it in the internet. Go to Solomon. He could tell you exactly what the truth was. He was a wise man because his wisdom was from God. And he had everything. And his conclusion was, listen, I had all of that. And everything you're dreaming for, I've had. And here's my conclusion. It's not worth one single thing apart from a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.23. Y'all turn there for just a second. 2 Corinthians 11.23. Turn right. Left, I'm sorry. Turn left. 11.23. 2 Corinthians. Alright, contentment is learned behavior. Y'all with me? Contentment is learned behavior. Contentment is independent of our circumstances.
this was a man who had this kind of experience with God. Are they not ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and besides other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches. Do I know anything about weakness? Absolutely. And what did I come out of that concluding? That in all things, I can be content. Because here's what's head and shoulders above every other claim to God other than Christianity. Are you listening to me? This is what's head and shoulders above every other claim to Christianity. Let's, let's, let's turn on the light. What's, what's head and shoulders above this and what makes Christianity unique is this. It's very simple. God is knowable. God is knowable. Every other system of belief paints God as mysterious distant and recluse. You've got to do that. Because see, if you're going to come up with a false God, you've got to make Him that way. Because if you make Him that way, He's far enough away from you to keep you to not get in the way of you worshiping yourself. So He's got to be distant. He's got to be... You know, the music from the Twilight Zone. You know, and He can't be known. He's distant, recluse, unpredictable. And not knowable. And what you've got to do is do the best you can in this life and have the best life now and do what you can to eke out an existence, fulfill your own needs and hope when it's all said and done, this God that you've kept pushing off is going to be okay with your performance. That's just as simple as this. It is erecting a standard about who God is that you think you can meet up to. And if you can keep Him distant and far away from the truth and keep Him away from you enough, you think that you'll be alright in judgment. The truth of the matter is, the Bible teaches that God is knowable. The Bible teaches that Jesus came down here on this earth not to die for worthy people. Did you know the Bible says there is no peace for the wicked? Do you know who wicked people are? Wicked people are people who have not repented toward God and put their faith in His Son. If you have repented, you once were wicked. And He came and sent His Son and brutally offered Him up on a sacrifice on Calvary's hill, spread His blood there across the mercy seat of heaven and raised Him from the dead three days later. And for all who come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, He accepts His sacrifice as payment for their wickedness, calls you righteous, and gives you eternal life as a gift. It's not worked for, earned, or deserved. And when Jesus did that, He reconciles us to God and gives us not only peace with God, but the peace of God. And God is now, through His Son, knowable. Isn't that wonderful? 
He's not distant or recluse or unpredictable. I don't mean that He does things according to our timetable, but God is predictable in the sense that you can count on He's going to act consistent with His Word. He's predictable in this. If He makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. He's predictable in this, that if He sent His Son the first time, He's going to send Him the second time. He's predictable in this, that He is trustworthy. He's predictable in this, that He's the author of life. He's predictable in this, that He doesn't give life. He is life. He's predictable in this, and that He doesn't point us to the way. He is the way. He's predictable in this in that He doesn't tell us truth. He is truth. So what is the secret? What is the learned behavior that teaches you that contentment is independent of your circumstances and not subject to them? What is it? What is the truth? Where does this default to? Where is the lowest common denominator? What upholds this? How did he make those conclusions? He made those conclusions because he comes to the end of the paragraph and says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The contentment is knowing this. Christ is my life. It's not just knowing that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's experiencing that. The Bible says when Christ who is your life is revealed, you will also be revealed with Him in glory. The Bible says if we have been, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I know I'm eternal because Jesus is eternal. I don't have a life anymore. Paul began the letter and said this. This is the secret of my contentment. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He believed that so much that it constituted a turmoil, a, a conflict within him to say, I don't know if I need to stay here, which would be for your benefit, or go on to heaven, which would be far greater. I don't know which one. But I know this, if I'm here, it'll be fruitful labor for my service. You know why? Because I long since died, and I'm not here anymore. And Christ lives in me. Hallelujah. The secret to contentment is knowing your God. If you've repented toward Jesus Christ, toward God, and put faith in His Son, the Bible says this is eternal life, that they may... Know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is not a time frame. It is a condition. It is being rightly related to God through repentant faith in His Son. And in so in that right relationship, you have life because life is now in you. How, how does God accomplish that? Let me tell you this. This is the part we don't like. I know I don't sometimes. Let me just say me. Let me just don't make a judgment on you. I don't like this sometimes. I just don't like the way God goes about showing me that. What a false notion. What a, what a ridiculous anti-biblical notion is this. And you probably said it before. And if you said it recently, forgive me. Because I love you. I really do love you. And, and, and I'm, I don't mean to, to, to make light of what you said. But let's examine this in light of Scripture. Let's start thinking biblically. Let's, let's ask God to give us... We have the mind of Christ already. Let's start thinking biblically. God will never put on you more than you can handle. Hmm. God will never put on you more than you can handle. 
Hmm. I know where that probably comes from. If you want to look at it from a biblical perspective, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that no temptation is overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God, along with the temptation, will provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. But will God put you in positions that are beyond your capacity to handle? Can I give you a, a real broad definition of that? Every circumstance He puts you in is beyond your ability to handle. <laughs> name one. And what the ones you name, if you can think of it, you can handle it, you better be repentant for God right now because you can't handle it. God does put you in positions daily that you can't handle. Why? So you can learn this principle. Who are you going to draw from? Where's the strength going to come from? Does Jesus limit it? Are there furrow in His brow? Is there worry in heaven? Do you think God's up in heaven wrenching His hands going, what in the world? How in the world am I going to build the church without Lindsay? Goodness gracious alive. I don't know what I'm going to do. Boy, he better get in line. I'll tell you right now, he's got me a nervous wreck. Is God that way to you? Man, he's up in heaven with no fur on his brow. They're having a party in heaven. They're rejoicing over one sinner who repents. The Bible says that his presence is the fullness of joy. There's no fur in God's brow. There's nothing too hard for God. Five times in the Bible it says, with God, nothing is impossible. Amen? The problem is we don't take time to know Him. That's the problem. Time and again, oh, saints, let's join together in a renewed spirit of passion to go after our God. Let's chase Him. He chased you when you got saved. None of y'all came to Christ. I didn't either. He came to you. No man seeks God. You've been running away from Him. The moment you got out of the womb, you started running. Like that. And man, some of us got faster than the others, but we went on a trajectory away from God as fast as we could get. And He chased you. He sought you. And He bought you with His redeeming blood. Hallelujah. 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 Now that He sought you, the tide's turned. And you're to seek Him. And we go after Him through His Word. And the Apostle Paul did that. And the Apostle Paul would get in these messes. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. Turn left and go over there. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. This was his conclusion. This was his conclusion. You know what? God calls people to a tough place, a tough environment, to a tough time. Don't feel sorry for them. Rejoice! Because they're in the middle of God's will if they've sought Him. We need to rejoice. Because listen to me. Listen to me. It's that word that we wanted to use the other day and I wanted to put on a poster board and I should have done it. It's that word that's common among all the trials and tribulations we go through. And it's called a beautiful word called temporary. And look what he says here. For our light affliction, affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. <coughs> While we <coughs> do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen is right, Brian. Hey, listen to me. Listen to me. The takeaways. Contentment is learned behavior. Contentment is independent of your circumstances. And the behavior that you learn that feeds the soul of a contented man is to know your God and to make Him known. You will make Him known if you know Him. I got to thinking about this and was just 
teasing over this through the week. And there are some things you just don't share. You know one of the things I thought of that you don't share? There's some people, Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. Who borrows tombs? Don't you like that, Michelle? He's buried in a borrowed tomb. You know why? He wasn't going to need it but for three days. Isn't that good? I heard E.V. Hill say that one time. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb because he wasn't going to need it but for three days. I like that. Amen. Guess what? You don't borrow toothpicks either. Do you? Joseph, I think the world of you. I appreciate you. You're a dear friend. We've known each other for a long time right now. And I think a lot of you, but I'm here to tell you. You go to pulling something out of your teeth with a toothpick and offer it to me, I'm going to reject it. Amen? Toothpicks are personal. You understand? Some of you are trying to hand off faith that way. You know what? Until God becomes personal to you, He's going to be hard-pressed to be seen as a personal God to the people that you care about. Let's don't let Him be some distant God who's just a, a bunch of principles. Let's let Him be the Prince of Peace that is known through His principles. Let's don't make the principles the end. Let's make them the method and the means by which we know our God. The Bible says this. Listen to this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Bible says, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the strong man boast in his strength, but let the man who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Amen? You've got to spend time with him. You've got to sit at his feet. Crack open the Bible and let him speak sweet something into your ear and obediently respond to what you hear. Okay, here's the deal. Commitment is learned behavior. I mean, contentment. Contentment is learned behavior. Contentment is independent of our circumstances. And contentment is learned by learning the secret that Paul knew. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he's your life. Last one and we'll go. So God's not going to put on you more than you can handle. Let's ruin that biblically, that myth this morning. Let's, 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 let's biblically throw that away. Let's put that in the casket. That's not true. Because some of you are weighted down with burdens this morning and cares and difficulties, and you think that, well, there must be something wrong with me. When in reality, God's using that just to direct you to thee. 2 Corinthians 12. 7 through 10. Here's the other principle takeaway. God is attracted to weakness. God is attracted to weakness. Wherever you think you're strongest is where you're probably in the most trouble or headed for. But I'll assure you that wherever you're the weakest is probably where God's doing His greatest work. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 Lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this, this is Paul speaking, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Oh, dear ones, God's attracted to weakness. Nobody gets you to the end of yourself. And He gets you and I to the end of ourselves. That's when He just gets started. The Bible says that because of Jesus, you have everything that you need. The devil wants to, to, to talk you into the fact that He's not enough. He wants to talk you into the fact that, well, there's some experience. Listen, there's some, there's some something, there's some unmet need, and the church has bought into that. And now we build churches and church ministries around ministering to quote unquote felt needs. And then we see Jesus as a spiritual Santa Claus that's here to satisfy our whims, and it takes away from the worship of our great God, who is in and of Himself all sufficient and available to the believer. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Aren't you grateful for that? 1 Corinthians. You want to write that down? That was Ephesians 1, 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. Apostle Paul says this, talking to the Corinthian church, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Look at, look at verse 5. For you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. You were enriched in everything through Him. Colossians 2, 8-10. through 10. Colossians 2. Oh, I hope you're built up with this and torn down if you need to be because of your pockets of disbelief. But if it needs to tear you down, then let God tear you down so He can build you back up again and repent. If you're trying to feed some appetites that you just cannot feed because you're looking somewhere else besides Jesus, He's not just some infinite need meter, but He is all-sufficient. He deserves our worship. He's the only object of legitimate worship. Colossians 2, verses 8-10 through 10, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And friends, if you're a believer, now if you're not a believer, you're incomplete. But if you're a believer, you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. And then we'll close with this one. Second Peter Chapter 1, 2 Peter, chapter 1, 2-4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, here we go, knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us most things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Does it say most things, does it? You know what the Greek word there is? All. As His divine power has given to us all things. That means all. 
That means Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. And that means for us to believe anything less means we've been duped by the devil and our fleshly appetites that will never, ever, ever be satisfied. And it means that now we can come this morning in repentant faith and ask God to see if there's any offensive thought or way in us and lead us into the way everlasting where we've operated on false notions that Jesus Christ is just not enough. It means we can repent this morning. We can repent this morning. And we can learn contentment as an act of praise. Contentment had nothing to do with the character and nature of Paul, but had everything to do with the character and nature of God. The contentment is learned behavior. The contentment is independent of your circumstances, not contingent upon them. And that God will put you through more than you can handle, only so as you can draw from Him and His life within and get to know your great God because God is attracted to weakness. Celebrate your weaknesses and celebrate those in your life who expose them. Don't see them as being impediments to your spiritual growth. See them as being a manifestation of God's grace to promote your growth. See the difficult circumstances of your life and what you face in the future. Not as God's designed to do anything but conform you to the image of his blessed son so that you can celebrate with truth with the apostle paul i've had a lot of things in my life i've had abundance and i've had next to nothing but i've learned this that never had anything to do with or can touch my contentment because i've found it in him